Now, on this Invest Talk podcast, Justin Klein listens to your questions and provides unbiased answers. Chart is definitely in a downtrend and it's uh, it's definitely not cheap enough yet. Invest Talk. Your participation makes it unique. 888-99-CHART. This is Invest Talk. Independent thinking, shared success. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Thursday, July 28th, 2022 edition. I hope you are all are enjoying your summer. Between the volatility and the heat, I know things can get a bit uncomfortable. Dallas, Texas hit 102 today, and I know we have Invest Talk listeners there and uh, around the world. Medford, Oregon reached 111. Wow. Uh, still gets hot up there in Oregon. And the the big question, though, for you is, how are you handling the heat in the market and the volatility? And remember, volatility goes both ways. It goes down and it goes up. And in normal markets, you tend to have kind of steady uh, increases and swift drops. And in bear markets, what you have are steady declines and swift bear market rallies. And you're kind of seeing that right now is that we've had this kind of steady decline since uh, late last year. And we're getting a bit of a bear market rally as sentiment got really, really overly bearish uh, over the past month or so. And these are dynamics that you need to understand as an investor. So you're not shaken out of positions, you know what kind of market we're in, and you can capitalize on the right opportunities, as well as uh, not not be taken with the uh, the risks that are out there. And there are always risks, different types, different sectors uh, have different types of risk from interest rate risk to credit risk to um, cyclical risk, uh, commodity risk, etc. There's so much to really balance out each and every day when you're trying to make decisions. And that's what I'm here to help you do is understand the market dynamics and put the odds in your favor. So I'm Justin Klein. I look forward to this hour with you answering your finance and investment questions with my straight and unbiased answers. And today's investing situation is different, as we've discussed many, many times, and therefore your playbook has to adjust as well. So my goal is to help you understand this environment and succeed and gather the tools that are going to, that you're going to need to make consistently good decisions. I get calls all the time about one particular stock and that's not our goal here. Our goal isn't just to give you particular stock ideas. Our goal here is to give you a mindset, give you the tools so that you can do this on your own. So you can make good decisions day after day know what a good company is a bad company know whether you're chasing performance or uh taking a tip versus 
making a, a good solid decision based on the fundamentals, on, on reality, on uh, good sound logic. And I invite your phone calls and questions right now during our live stream program from four to five Pacific time. Or if you're listening after hours, which I know a lot of you are, you can call our 24 hour listen line, which is 888-99 chart. So let's get right to our first listener question now. Hi, my name is Lou, longtime listener. I was wondering what your thoughts are on PIMCO Dynamic Fund, PDI. I've invested a little bit into that fund, and I'm just wondering if I should continue investing or just hold it. Thanks. Bye. All right. This is the PIMCO Dynamic Income Closed End Fund. And with a lot of these bond-focused closed-end funds, they pay a high distribution rate, about 12.5%. But to get that, they have to put leverage on their positions, 46% leverage for this particular fund. And that is great when times are great in the bond market, uh, but it cuts both ways. Leverage always cuts both ways. And that's why so far from its peak around $30 per share, it's all the way down to 21. So it's down, uh, call it a third over the past about a year, yeah, because it peaked back in June of last year. So took a year, steady grind lower as interest rates went up, and that leverage obviously hurt. Uh, and whether you're, you're getting 12% payout, but if you're dropping 33%, you're down 20 plus percent. Okay, so that's not a great dynamic in a rising rate environment. Now, let's look at what they're invested in. In uh, it's quite complex. There's uh, once again a lot of a lot of leverage. Uh, let's look at the type of bonds they have: 19% government, 30% corporate, 29% securitized, 11% cash and equivalents, and about 9% in others. Now the maturity schedule. Let's take a look at that. Most of them are relatively short term, but it's it's really all over the board from short term all the way to very long term. About six and halfers in that portfolio is over 30 years. So pretty spread out. Now I don't have, let me see this. Yeah, it's not giving me any data on like the average maturity, etc. But I just don't like the leverage here. It's not my, I, I don't like to take leverage in the bond market just to get that, to chase that yield. Maybe as a very small percentage of your portfolio, that's fine. But what you can see here is, that because it dropped 33%, it's going to have extensive, extensive uh, duration risk. And that's not what I want. I don't want a ton of duration risk in my portfolio. So the fact that it looks like, geez, 40, 50, 60, 70% of the the holdings are in long-term bonds. And I don't like that. So near term, I do think it's going to get a rally because rates are coming down a bit and pulling back but not a name that I would own long-term. That was PIMCO Dynamic Income, PDI. Now let's, uh, we're gonna go to Robert. How you doing, Robert? Doing well today, Justin, how are you? Doing pretty well. It looks like you wanna talk about Kohl's, KSS. Yeah, I was just taking a look at that today, and I know a lot of the retail uh, retail stocks have gotten hit pretty hard the last month or so, and Kohl's certainly is right there with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm just wondering, with this now 
nearly 7% dividend if you think this would be an opportune time to start a position in Kohl's? Well, once again, I try to break everybody of this. 7% dividend, that's should be an irrelevant fact for everybody. It should be very low on the, on the priority list. Okay, it's all about the business and how stable is their business, how stable is their balance sheet. Uh, they have a little bit of debt, but not too much. Uh, trading at relatively low multiple enterprise value, even at two times, that's pretty cheap. And historically, that does trade between uh, about two and the high of uh, about 12 recently. Um, so I do think it, it is on the cheap side. Uh, the issue always with Kohl's is kind of longer term is how sustainable is their business model uh, with the, their kind of standalone uh, department stores. Now they're well uh, diversified uh, in 49 different states. So that's a good thing. Um, but I wouldn't focus on that yield because the yield, uh, they may not uh, sustain that yield. When you look at their, their payout ratio, uh, actually it's only about 22%. Yeah. So that's actually not too bad. Um, I have no problem with it down here after this drop because it is so cheap. Um, but remember, don't just focus on the dividend, focus on the business, which is very volatile. Uh, and uh, certainly activity is going to cool down and already has last quarter revenue down 4%, earnings down 90% year over year, and just shows the volatility of their business. Um, so not my favorite in the retail space, but it is cheap enough for me to take a, a, good, a good crack at it down at these levels. That was Kohl's, KSS. Now let's pivot to, sorry. Now we're heading into a break, actually. And I welcome your finance and investment questions on 888 chart Why do listener questions make InvestTalk better? Which of these would you recommend? Because each caller presents fresh questions in their voice. I was curious if you still think aluminum has a ways to go from here. When do I know the right time to take profits? Should I be looking for an exit? Should I be holding here? And listeners instinctively realize that InvestTalk uniquely offers a welcome dose of investing satisfaction. I think you have a terrific show, and I've learned a whole lot. Hey, guys, love your show. Uh, I've been listening for several years now, and I've learned a lot. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley understand what investors need and want. I would look at it from a tax perspective. If there's no tax implications, move on, find better ways to use that money. I'm going with the odds. I think a half position now would at least get you in it and get you watching it so you won't lose track of it. Don't forget to call Investor 888-99-CHART. Each day, InvestTalk listeners submit their finance and investment questions via phone or email. Would you like your question to be put near the top of the list? Just take a minute or two to leave a review and rating for InvestTalk at iTunes. And be sure to include a brief question with your iTunes review comments. Now, my focus point today is based on this headline, as mortgage rates soared, pending home sales fell 20% in June. So we're going to look at the trends there in the various regions of the country. And in connection with that, I want to touch on the markets that are probably going to struggle the most as we go through this housing, I call it correction. 
It was overstimulated. There were various factors that were driving prices up, including mortgage and rent moratoriums. So new supply coming on market uh, was was um, held back because of that. And then you had just cheap money and people wanting to, needing to move into bigger homes, uh, out of state, etc. And that drove up uh, the prices in many markets. So we're going to look at uh, the trends there. And then carbon credits, carbon credits. This is something that was has been hot lately over the past few years as a good investment, um, but it's starting to sell off. And I think there are some interesting reasons why and why you may want to temper your expectation for gains in the carbon credit market if you own some of the ETFs or companies that are exposed to that. So we're going to look at that story. And then the uh, tech workers. Tech workers used to be able to get whatever they wanted. Well, not as much anymore. And look at some trends in the tech worker space. Okay. Now let's take a look at the market today. We had the S&P that was up 48 points, a little over 1%. Nice follow through from yesterday's uh, Fed announcement. Now remember, when there's big news, whether that's about a mar about a, uh, the market as a whole, uh, about a particular company, there's usually a three-day period of the markets adjusting to this news. And then you get um, a snapback or, or some sort of uh, settling in. And I think we're still in that phase. We had earnings from uh, Meta, which were uh, disappointing, but didn't really drop too much down eight bucks, um, about four or 5% on, uh, on Meta, uh, but didn't break the, the recent lows. Uh, you had Netflix after hours today that was up uh, nicely. A Apple was up uh, slightly after hours. And we continue to go roll through earnings season, which is doing okay. Not great, but just okay. And uh, the market is is fine with that. The fine with earnings so far, an okay earnings season with a Fed that looks to be acknowledging weakness in the economy and thus likely to reduce their pace of tightening. And I think that's what's really giving the market a, a move today and uh, or yesterday and today. And a big indication of that was the yen. Uh, the the because of interest rate policy. Uh, changes. That's usually what mainly drives currency markets. It's not the only thing that drives currency markets, but it's the main thing. And what's interesting about the yen is everyone knows their policy, right? They're keeping rates at 0.25%. They don't plan to raise uh, rates. Inflation's gone up, but not to a level that is worrying uh, Japan in any way. So their policy is very static. So when the market in the yen moves, it's it's not really sending a message about the the yen or, or the Bank of Japan and what they're doing, but the, it is sending a message about what the Fed might do because of that particular, because the Fed's policy is is more fluid than uh, than Japan. And so when the yen rallies like this, that is giving indication that the Fed is, is likely to pivot. You had short-term rates uh, come down as well today after uh, rising a bit yesterday on the Fed news. And the 10-year, the 10-year has pulled back uh, five basis points today after a, a little bit of a drop yesterday, now down to 2.68%, the lowest level really since April. And then gold got a nice lift on top of that. And it, it is also very correlated to the yen. So if the yen gets stronger, that's going to give strength to gold.
Well, this is Invest Talk. We are heading into our first hard break, and your questions drive this program. So that's why I encourage you to give us a call at 888 99Chart. Invest Talk is here to help. And when you download the free Invest Talk podcasts, don't forget to rate and review. The phone lines are open 888 99Chart. Now, my focus point today is based on this headline As mortgage rates soared, pending home sales fell 20% in June. And with the exception of the first two months of COVID, Home sales were at their slowest pace since September of 2011. Yeah, 2011. Big, big shift in the housing market in a short period of time. And that shouldn't shock anyone with the uh, mortgage rates averaging about 6% uh, by the middle of June. And on a monthly basis, pending home sales fell a wider than expected 8.6%. That's worse than what most economists are expecting as a 1% drop. Uh, but year over year, sales are down 20%. So 20% year over year and 8.6% month over month. And the big question is, how long will the, the weakness last? And I've said this, as long as we remain above 5% on the on the uh, 30 year, then we're probably going to remain in a, uh, a correcting market. And we pulled back, so six percent is now more like five and a quarter on the thirty year. Jumbo's more like four and a half, four and three quarters. I'm seeing some uh, as low as uh, four and a quarter on the jumbo side. So <clears throat> this is clearly sapping demand, and especially in the South and the West, where in the South sales declined eight point nine percent month over month and twelve point two percent year over year. In the West. month over month and 31% year over year. The Northeast and the Midwest weren't as bad. Northeast 6.7% year over year down and 17.6%, oh sorry, 17.6% year over year, 6.7% month over month. And Midwest, that was down only 3.8% month over month and 13.4% year over year. So those are kind of the breakdowns of the north, south, east, and west. And uh, the Midwest, excuse me, that is uh, the best performing, whereas the west is the worst performing. And builders are starting to offer more incentives to offload inventory. And I said this before, that's, it just, builders were making a lot of money, ton of money, uh, much higher margins than they were used to, typically in the low to mid 20% range, builders were making 30% margins on their homes because of the prices. So they have a lot of room to cut cut prices, and they're going to be the first ones to do it because they know they need to move that inventory, whereas most other people, they can sit on uh, their home and, and wait a little while and, and try to get the best price. And I think that's going to be a bad decision. If you're trying to sell sell your home, you need to be realistic about what's happening right now in the market and be quicker to cut versus uh, everybody else. Now, if you look at particular parts of the the US, there are some that are gonna get hit more than others. Now, number one likely is going to be Boise, Idaho. It was one of the hottest 
Zoom towns, they call them, or everyone moving to different parts of the country, working remotely and arbitraging that cost of living from those high cost states like here in California and, and, and elsewhere. Now, buyers are starting to balk at those record prices and 61% of listings in the Boise metro area cut their price in June, 61%. That's the highest rate of 97 metro areas surveyed by Redfin. Now, home builders are also cutting back construction in that area, and it's not nearly as affordable as it used to be. The Boise isn't, and this is, um, you've seen sales across the U.S. uh, fall for five straight months, and this is not... This is not a a one-off event just for Boise. There are other areas like Denver, Salt Lake City, Tacoma, Washington, Phoenix, Arizona, and Austin, Texas. Those are probably the areas that have the most room to fall from the high uh, and and just pull back. And this is is what I'm I'm speaking about. This is more of the market pulling back. It doesn't need to be a crash. It's just every, there, there were pandemic anomalies that brought prices to unrealistic levels. Just like back in 06, 05, 06, when there were lending anomalies that brought prices to unrealistic levels and then things uh, reverted. There's similar dynamics in that sense, but also differences in the fact that people were being lent, that were being lent to were still very good credits, whereas back in 05, 06, not very good credits. Now, inventory in Atta County, which is around Boise, that's up 176% year over year. Austin, Texas, up 218% year over year. Phoenix, Arizona, up 156% year over year. So these are examples of areas that are going to have larger pullbacks, larger reversions to the mean. And that's what it is, reversions to the mean and and the multiples that the, the homes are trading at to incomes are going to come down just like the multiples in stocks. Long duration, long duration assets get hurt when interest rates go up. Okay. Now long duration assets could be long bonds, right? 30 year treasury, for example, but there's also growth stocks. Those tend to be long duration assets because it's all about what's happening five, 10, 15 years from now, like we've spoken about. That's a long duration assets asset. That's why they get hurt the most in rising interest environment. Homes are also a long duration asset, 30 year mortgages, 15 year mortgages. All of these are reliant on higher or lower, low interest rates. When interest go up, you see things like this. So those are the dynamics in play right now. And uh, you don't need to be panicked about it, but just understand the real estate market that we're in now. Now the next and best talk, the story behind this question. How is a bear market different from an economic recession? Steve will get to that story tomorrow, but for now, I'm Justin Klein, and I'm ready to take your questions live at 888-99-CHART. Let's say you've been thinking about learning a new language. Okay, why? I mean, how would it come in handy? And where would you want to use it? Could it be that you have an upcoming international trip? Or maybe you want to connect with family members or friends from a different culture. I think you should know about Rosetta Stone. With millions of users, it's been the world's most trusted language learning program for 30 years. Rosetta Stone is available on your desktop or as an app with audio companion and the ability to download lessons offline. 
Rosetta Stone truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It has a built-in, patented speech recognition engine called True Accent. So as you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you pronounce words. With Rosetta Stone, you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. It's an intuitive process designed for long-term retention. You really learn to speak, listen, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone is an amazing value, so your special skill set is within easy reach. You know you want to do this, so don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, InvestTalk listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off now at rosettastone.com today. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use, and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, Stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's attack resistance platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com. HackerOne.com. One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors. And I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888 99Chart. Hi, Steve and Justin. Thanks for all you do. Quick question Love your opinion on Verizon. It's down quite a bit. I did have an alert set for under $45, and recently it dipped under that mark. Dividend looks very, very safe, so looking to add this to my long-term dividend portfolio and just would love your opinion at this point. Thanks again. I'll listen on the show. All right. Looking at Verizon, and I will say it is pretty cheap down here, around $45 per share, so I liked your your trigger. Uh, now, I would say that the dividend is not very, very safe. I think that's a bit of a stretch there. And Now, if you look at the uh, payout ratio is about 51%, but the cash dividend pay ratio is about 105%. So 
So in order to pay that dividend, it's uh, it's going to have to uh, take on a little debt, which is fine. Uh, but it's uh, if when when you have a cash dividend payout ratio around that 100% level, that doesn't make it very very safe. Now their business model is pretty steady, so it is on the safer side. But I wouldn't classify it as very, very safe. It does have some risk there in the fact that a company like T-Mobile is taking some market share. And I think that's really what's driving this down. You had AT&T with bad earnings as well and worried about customers paying their, their bill. And I don't really worry about that too much. I think that's a bit uh, overblown in the market because they're still going to have to pay it. They're still due that uh, that bill, uh, but it just shows you their cash flow has been lower because people are slower to pay their cell phone bills. So I do like it down here. I think it's a good value. Is it the best value in the telecom space? I wouldn't say that, but it is a very solid value down here around $45 per share. So thanks for the call. Now, when people take the time to leave an Invest Talk podcast review on iTunes, we like to thank them for their courtesy by getting to their question quickly. Jay Kaz says, what do you do with your funds once you realize we are entering this particular bear market? Also, do you just strategically transfer funds from one stock to another and let the market go where it goes and make sure you have your funds in the most favorable positions based on the current circumstances? Question mark. So that's the question. I'll just address this broadly. When you realize you're in a bear market, it's usually too late to do a whole lot. You, you should have done it uh, beforehand. You know, you, you want to make changes to your portfolio when things are good, <laughs> not as much as when things are, are down. That doesn't mean you shouldn't make changes. You should all, you definitely look at the economic backdrop to understand what type of risk you're taking, uh, what sectors you have allocated to and which ones you should be overweight. Now, if you continue to think that the bear market is going to continue, then you want to be overweight more non-cyclical type of companies. Uh, but you also have to look at the inflationary backdrop. So we still like industrials and, and energy because we think the inflation is going to remain relatively elevated. Um, so it's really just about creating an asset allocation and continue to rebalance and adjust that asset allocation based on the economic backdrop. That's how you do well in all types of markets. Okay. So whether we're in a bear market, I, I, I hate the term, just like a recession, oh, a recession or a bear market, it, it, they're all, almost both overly simplified. A bear market's 20% down. A uh, recession is two quarters of a row of negative GDP growth, real GDP growth. But it could be a mild recession or a mild bear market. It could be a recession that is long lasting and very deep, like the financial crisis, or it can be a bear market that is very deep and long lasting, like the financial crisis. Most are not like the financial crisis. Most bear markets, most recessions are not like 08. There's been two over the past hundred years, 08 and 1929. They were that bad. It's extremely rare to get those things. It's, it's definitely rare to see them back to back. So this, and the reason, the reason that it's rare is because 
politicians, investors, companies, as well as investors have a short memory. And they try to avoid the things that caused that bad of a situation back then. And so collectively, when you all, when every actor avoids that situation, usually gets, you don't get that outcome, right? It's when actors within the economy, within the system, ignore the risks, right? Don't have a memory of bad decisions, bad things, really bad things happening. That's when they take the eye off the ball and they kind of brush the potential risks aside like they did with uh, subprime, et cetera. Uh, remember Bernanke saying, oh, subprime's contained, et cetera, because they didn't have that, that memory, okay? So what you need to do in a bear market is understand, look around and say, is this like the last bear market? Is it like the last recession? Or is it more along the lines of your standard bear market or recession? The odds are very good. Once again, the last recession is not going to be like the next recession. They're very different. So you see it right now, and you need to just simply focus on the opportunities that are presented to you. The different companies, the different sectors that are attractive right now based on longer term, when the economy does recover, which it will, it will even out, it will recover. America is not going away. Okay. Um, so hope that helped you give you some perspective and don't be reactionary, have a plan, execute it on a daily basis. Let's go to James in New York and wants to talk about PayPal. How are you doing tonight? Doing well. So uh, I own PayPal, and I'm not quite ready to sell it. I think it has a ways to go. It had some really good strength yesterday, and I believe earnings are supposed to come out next week. Do you advise that I maybe hold on to it or take some profit? It's a very small position uh, position in my portfolio. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I had this call yesterday on the show, and as I'm saying, yeah, I think PayPal is a reasonable value down here. Earnings are, it looks like, on August 2nd at the at the close. So next week, and I think it's a, it's, it's a good value down here. Now, is it going to return to 300 like it was back in September? Probably not, but it's a reasonable value, good secular growth drivers. Um, and so I would probably hold it through earnings. It's been very, very oversold and it's trading at reasonable multiple. So, uh, I would hold it uh, through earnings. Thanks for the call. Hey, man. <laughs> Thank you. Now, let's touch a little bit on carbon credits, carbon credits. And what's interesting recently is that carbon credit prices have been on the decline. They peaked in February at $13.10, and they are they fell to $8.17 as of, uh, was that in March? When was that? Just recently. And... Carbon credits basically are things that uh, companies will buy to offset their emissions. And this is the global plan to try to incentivize companies to reduce their emissions by putting a price on what they are emitting. And, you know, it's interesting that it's kind of narrow, right? Because you don't have emission, we don't have uh, credits for 
pollution of, you know, ash and chemicals and things like that into the, the into the earth and the groundwater, et cetera. Um, so carbon credits are, are very narrow. Uh, and historically, they have been pretty pretty uncorrelated with the overall equity markets, but that has started to change. This recent sell-off, more speculative carbon credits fell more, more than higher quality uh, carbon credits. So they're starting to act a little bit more like equities. Rising prices have also, or rising interest rates, excuse me, have also affected speculation within the market. So less capital to go and bet on higher prices. So that's increased the volatility. But I think also the the trends with with ESG uh, are a big factor as well because just look what's look what's happening in Europe. If you cut off the investment, right? You make it more expensive to drill for oil and gas, then you're going to have these shortages and it, are carbon credits going to contribute to that? Are they going to change? Are they going to continue to ramp up the cost, which makes it more and more uneconomical to drill for oil and gas without having a, a strong replacement? And I think that's uh, the biggest worry here. And so if you have a lot of exposure to carbon credits, you probably should be a little bit worried, um, maybe reducing your exposure uh, because the chart, if I look at KRBN as a good example, that's the carbon ETF, the Crane Shares Global Carbon Strategy ETF, that had a big drop, went from 55, hit a low of 35 in just a span of three weeks in February. Now it's recover, recovered around 50 and now it's dropped back again to around $44 per share now. So it's it's clearly in a downtrend, the technicals are getting worse. And so once again, the, the trends here are a bit worrying when it comes to carbon credits. Uh, part of that, once again, is higher interest rates. Part of it could just be the changing attitude uh, to how the, the world is trying to deal with, uh, deal with carbon emissions and the, the, the energy crisis we're kind of stumbling into, especially in Europe and around the world, is likely to create backlash for things like carbon credits. And so I would encourage everyone to limit their exposure to this space. All right. Thanks for the call. Now let's pivot back to the Invest Talk Voice Bank for this question that came in earlier at 888.99 chart. Hi, Steve and Justin. This is Jason from Stockton, California. And I've been investing for a time in equities and in Forex, and I've started venturing into futures. But I wanted to ask you about bonds. And I'm just wondering, why would somebody choose to invest in bonds? And I guess the second part of that question would be, how do you know whether you should hold the bond to maturity or whether you should sell the bond early? And why would somebody do one of those things? Hope to hear your answer. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Very good question. Why would somebody invest in bonds? Simple, steady, consistent reliable income. You can't say that about Forex or equities or really any part of any asset class. Uh, maybe real estate, you could say that for, for, for good uh, high yielding uh, rental real estate. Uh, but with that, there, there's headaches uh, that come along with that potentially and, and certainly different types of risks. But with bonds, you are getting low maintenance, right? You own it. It's going to pay that dividend or that interest as long as the, the company or the entity is still, still around and not filing for bankruptcy. 
So we have plenty of clients. We have, uh, I would say our total book somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 25% of our book is in bonds for, for clients. And we like high grade corporates typically are the, the best, I think risk versus reward. Um, but every different type has its, uh, has its merits, especially munis if you're uh, in a very, very high tax bracket. Um, but that's why people would want to invest in, in those individual bonds. Uh, now, what's the difference between holding to maturity versus rolling them? We call them rolling them, where you're you're selling, they're, they're maturing in the next year or so, and you want to roll them out uh, to a longer maturity. And usually you want to do that when the yield curve is steep. For example, let's go back two years. Interest rates were very, very low, rock bottom. One-year treasury rates were half a percent or less. So if you had a bond that was maturing in less than a year, your yield to maturity was maybe 1%. So you could sell those, that bond, and you can go roll that out to a longer date of maturity, maybe four, five, seven years, and get four, five percent. This was a couple of years ago. And so now you're locking in a higher yield. And so for the next year, you're not just earning that 1%, but you're earning that 4% or 5%, whatever that yield on that new bond is. And then that same yield, uh, you know, out, and out years. So that's why a lot of people will roll their bonds over the, uh, in situations like that. Now in this market, it's not quite as good. Um, where the short-term rates are a lot higher, three uh, to 10 years, uh, the 10 years now at two and a half or so. Um, so one-year corporates are, are typically yielding three-ish uh, rate. And, you know, you, you can still get better yields than that uh, going out longer, but it's not nearly as attractive. So that spread between those aren't nearly as attractive. So that's why you would roll some, in some situations, it's more attractive to roll it out. Some, it's not as attractive. When it's not as attractive, maybe you just want to hold it to maturity. You don't want to take that longer duration risk because that's what you're doing. That's what you're doing if you are selling a short duration bond where it's maturing within the next year. And then you're going buying one that's farther out, matures in 2028, 2029, etc. That's increasing your duration of your portfolio. And maybe you don't want to do that right now. Maybe you think that yields are going to continue to go up and you want to be patient, wait for that bond to mature and then buy something later that's going out. So those are the re different reasons why you might roll versus hold to maturity. Thanks for the call. This is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein. We have one goal here is to help you achieve your own version of financial freedom. And our work continues after this final break. So if you're going to call, you want to do it right now at 888-99-CHART. You are listening to Invest Talk. Every Friday on the program and the podcast, Steve Peasley shares highlights from the newest edition of the KPP Premium Newsletter. Listen Fridays to Invest Talk. And now, Steve and Justin welcome your calls and questions. 888 99Chart. Hi, Steve and Justin. This is Kevin from California. I had a question regarding reverse mortgages. I'm trying to get a feeling of what you think about. The reason why I ask is because my in-laws, they did a very poor job of managing their money and into retirement, and they still have a mortgage that they're barely paying 
So we've been assisting them for a while now by uh, paying into the mortgage and now thinking about doing a reverse mortgage on it so that there's no more payments. What I want to do is make sure I don't lose any of that money that uh, we've already put into the house and trying to get a better idea of like what you think because I've only heard negative about reverse mortgages at the end of the mortgage, you know, when they pass away, what kind of debt might be involved and is there any way to salvage the house afterwards. There is some equity in there. So, you know, again, I just don't want to lose what I've already invested into it. Hopefully you have a site that I can listen to for on the show. Thanks. All right. Great question. Now, reverse mortgages, I would say are a last resort. You shouldn't rely on them. Uh, and the main reason is because they are very expensive. Uh, interest rates are very high. There are high fees to set them up, etc. Um, but they can be useful in the right situation. Now, generally, the general rule of thumb is you have to have at least 50% equity in the home in order for you to do a reverse mortgage. And they are, they vary in, in their, their terms. And sometimes you can get like a, a consistent cash flow from the reverse mortgage uh, to, to live off of, et cetera. Now there are rules around what happens if you go into a nursing home, you have to sell the, the home. Um, and typically because of the high interest rate, the high fees, the, the home is not going to go to your heirs, unfortunately, unless they have money to pay off the, the high mortgage. And if that's the case, then they might as well have just given, given you a uh, money to, to live off of. Um, so you kind of have to be resigned to the fact that that home is probably not going to the next of kin. Um, but if you don't have another way to get some income and it's your largest asset, and you have substantial equity in it, you don't want to move out because that's the, the then a more reverse mortgage is not a bad idea. Uh, you know, you could do a home equity line of credit, but that's not, you know, guaranteed. They can pull the equity line of credit. Once the more, the reverse mortgage is in place, then it's in place. So that's the nice thing about it. Um, so once again, last resort, you need about 50% equity in the home and it is very expensive. So, shouldn't be your fallback. It should, should be a fallback option, not a main option. Now, lastly, let's talk about the dollar and the dollar index um, is it's up about 8.7% this year through the month of June. And it notched its best first half since 2010. And it's, it's now at parity with the Euro for the first time since 2002. And a lot of this has to do with higher interest rates. Now, there are other countries that are raising interest rates, including Mexico, Peru, Poland, Czech, Czech, Czech Republic, Chile, and Brazil. Brazil has gone from 0% at the beginning of the year to over 10%, 13 and a quarter, excuse me, as of June. And so against those currencies, the dollar's not nearly as strong, but against the euro, who's been, uh, you know, the ECB has been slow to raise rates against the, the yen, where the Bank of Japan has been 
unwilling to raise rates at all, those are the biggest weights in the dollar index. And that's why you've seen uh, this major increase. But it does have a an impact on other countries as well. You see Sri Lanka filing for bankruptcy and defaulting uh, lately. And that was back in May. They have a lot of debt and uh, crazy inflation because of ESG mandates that uh, they imposed on themselves. And, and clearly that hasn't gone very well because they are a net importer. They're an island, basically, and importing a lot of basic goods, fuel, medicine, etc. And if you are, if you have countries that are big importers, uh, net importers of goods, and they'll have a lot of dollars not on the debt, like Argentina, Ukraine, Colombia, they're going to be more in trouble versus other countries that have uh, net exports, meaning they're probably getting paid in dollars, they're getting more dollars coming into their economy than they're sending out. Those tend to do much better. But a strong dollar historically is bad for these emerging markets. So just want to give you a heads up there what's happening and what impact the strong dollar is having around the world. I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve Peasley and I thank you for listening, and we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and be sure to rate and review. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, Call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is President and Justin Klein is Chief Executive Officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. Thank you for listening, and your comments and questions are welcome on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART.